This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Timothy Armu started his company at the age of 14. Then, in 2012, at just 17 years old, Timo decided to start a business newsletter. 11 months after we sold it for 110 grand, right? And I was like, oh my God, this is insane. Which ended up with him meeting people like Richard Branson. Gave me several of those moments in such a short space of time in that I was like, oh my God, now my life has changed. Imagine what comes next. Business success is a good game that I want to play. At just 21 years old, Timo launched Fanbytes with clients like Nike, Samsung. And then the government actually came to us and said, right, we want you to help uh, promote something around the minimum wage. Over the next five years, it grew from an idea in his bedroom to employing over 75 people. Then last year, it was acquired for an eight-figure sum, somewhere in the region between 20 and 50 million pounds. I was just like, oh my God, this is more money than I'll ever need in my entire life. Now, Timo speaks around the world, in New York, Dubai, and Beijing, sharing some of his best entrepreneurial tips. Someone makes a bunch of money that says, money doesn't make you happy, it's like, all right, mate. He's still only 28, and is becoming a flag bearer for Generation Z. My mum was just on benefits. This is Timo's story from top to bottom. And as you'll hear, he truly started from the bottom. I grew up on like the Oaken Road, fourth floor council estate. I was like, yo, I need to get out of this. Timo, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. What's up? It's so good to have you here. And um, we were talking just beforehand. It's been a year since you kind of made the big exit from Fanbytes. What have you learned in that year about life? Wow. Okay. Just going straight into it about life. <laughs> just ask the big questions. Not even about business, just life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we got acquired last year, 3rd of May. Um, I was 27 then. And I think I didn't have a long-term perspective on life. I was just like, oh my God, this is more money than I'll ever need in my entire life. I cannot believe this is my life. And that was kind of like where it ended for me. I was like, okay. And then afterwards I started thinking, right, and now what? Mm. You know? So there's this very weird thing that happens after you get some kind of liquidity. It's like shortly afterwards, you're kind of like, wow, this is incredible. And then maybe three months afterwards, you go, oh, wait, the world hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, you're like, well, people are just going along with life. I remember actually talking to my friend who said um, he also, you know, sold his company for like hundreds of millions. And the next day he went to Tesco and he was just like, 
why hasn't the world like why is there not a choir out here saying like oh my god you're so amazing so <laughs> there was that kind of um um uh kind of cognitive um dissonance there and then probably the and then probably the second thing was like i realized the conditions that brought me fulfillment were actually working with really smart people mm. so it wasn't actually the thing i was doing it was like the people that i was doing it with which was quite different to when i started fanbytes you know at 21 i was like oh actually i enjoy this particular idea yeah. i enjoy this particular thing and i didn't understand that actually the people were quite a big factor of that so i think like those two big revelations of like oh um actually um it's very important that you see life as not ending you know there's so much more things to do there's so many more interesting things and actually the choice of the people that you choose to do things with rather than what you choose to do is a lot more important so is the next requirement for what you do to work with interesting people more than anything else yeah so i think the people is the biggest thing um you know what fanbytes was you know like social media influencer business we kind of like stumbled into it because it was the world that we grew up in right so you know i started it in my second year of university because i was like oh well you know i get this youtube thing and i get this influencer thing other people don't get it therefore let me just kind of explore the general idea i didn't really consider you know the team of people i would choose to do it with and now i think for any you know subsequent thing i'm like oh actually um thinking about who to do it with and the type of team is a lot more important than what the product is because a good group of smart people can figure out whether a bad idea is bad yeah. and then they can figure out where the good idea is you know and talk us through what fanbytes was because you've got this great twitter thread that kind of uh, at the top of your page at the moment, which is pinned on kind of like the eight things you learned. Yeah. And like one of them is where you talk about the evolution of fanbytes going from four figures to five figures yeah, to yeah, six yeah. figures. And, you know, you started out at those kind of like, you know, small, just connecting the influencers yeah, 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 yeah. and the brands. But talk us through how it evolved. Yeah. So we started off and like, I founded it because I thought, well, people don't understand this whole influencer world. And I, as someone who was part of that audience, I had seen the evolution of the Zoellas of the world, the KSIs of the world. I saw that they were like driving the purchasing decisions of um, young people. And actually before Fanbytes, I had like built and sold a very small business. And I realized the value of social media and Facebook pages and all of that. So the whole premise of Fanbytes was we're going to build software which helps brands to identify and connect with the fastest growing social media influencers online, right? So the pure idea was a software business. And for that, we were just, you know, charging a couple of grand to use the software, et cetera. Until one day, a brand came to us and said, hey, we would like you to run a run an entire campaign for us. And I was like, oh, okay, here's the software. And then I, like, no, 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 no. We want you to do it. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, 
we're now going to have to build a bit of like a services part of the business. And so by that, and so by that time, that's when we're able to charge, you know, 10, 20, 50 grand for a campaign. And then the government actually came to us and said, right, we want you to help uh, promote something around the minimum wage. And I was like, okay, you know, and we have a hundred grand. And at that point it was now we need to think about doing the strategy behind it, the creative behind it and the execution behind it. So by the time we sold the company, we were 75 people and like the average campaign we're doing was in the six figure mark. So we went from, you know, the first ever campaign that we ever did was for like 300 pounds <laughs> and then to three grand to 30 grand to 300 grand all because we basically moved up the chain from just connecting brands and influencers to actually be in a tech enabled agency where we're strategizing, planning, executing, reporting on really large scale influencer campaigns across the world. And what do you think the future of the influencer economy looks like? Because particularly in Mm. my world, uh, my original world of government, um, it feels like it doesn't have a great reputation and (laughs) so on. It's interesting you mentioned the government using it a couple of times. Yeah. But what do you think? Because a lot of people, you know, a lot of youngsters now say they want to be part of the influencer economy, etc. Yeah. Where do you think the jobs of the future are in it? I get asked this question a lot about, if you were to start Fanbytes now, mm. do you think it'd be successful? And I think that the answer is no, right? Because I think when we started it, people didn't understand how the influencer world worked. And even as part of our acquisition, a big rationale of the acquisition of Fanbytes was that influencer marketing will like start off very independent, mm. start off very siloed. Similar to how radio started off silo, TV started off silo, and then at some point there will be consolidation, right? And so when Fanbytes got acquired, it was acquired by a broader media company, Brain Labs, who basically needed to have influence as part of their overall thing. So that first bit is to say that I don't think the opportunities in influencer marketing are any more in, in connecting brands to influencers and that sort of thing. I think that market has become very congested if you're trying to do it independently. It has to be part of a much uh, broader mix. Where the future, where the opportunities are though, is if you like take an influencer at their core, they're just a media brand with a face on top of it, right? Yeah. Like they just have a curated audience who are curated by a specific interest, a specific passion. And there just happens to be almost like a, like a human curator who you see, uh, who is the YouTuber, TikToker, blah, blah. So if you take that to its most almost logical conclusion, therefore, then like you just, if you want to see the future of influencers, you just see the future of what media brands are now, which is they build a bunch of, um, direct to consumer propositions. They build a bunch of stuff around events, around exhibitions, around, um, you know, uh, e-com. That's where I see the future of influencers, which is, um, very niche communities who are monetizing direct to consumer and who are building brands off the basis of um, their audience. And I think 
very important is the word niche, right? And how do how do you think Gen Z are different in that regard in terms of the makeup and the way they see the world? Because you've become a flag waver for that yeah. generation now. And it's striking that they're probably it is probably one of the biggest differentiators in generations that we've seen between millennial and Gen Z. Mm. And I'd love you to kind of partly expand on what you were just saying about how do you think Generation Z are different? Well, I think a couple of things. I think the first one is when you have a generation who have basically grown up with almost the phone as their mouthpiece and their form of TV, the world feels a lot smaller. And so as a consequence of that, when you think about ideas, the ideas don't feel like um, UK ideas or American ideas or, you know, Chinese ideas. They're more like, I can just put out content here or I can create this idea and anyone will see it because the, you know, like social media algorithms would show them to the right people. And I think that kind of element of we think big directly from the start is something which is quite different from the uh, with the Gen Z audience compared to older audiences. There's almost this kind of weird uh, naivety of like, well, of course this thing is big because, well, I can access someone in Bangladesh right now, so they could see my content, you know, yeah. or like they could see this idea. Um, the other thing that I'd also say is, you know, there's this... Uh, misnomer where people say um gen z care a lot about social issues and, yeah. and all of that and i kind of think that's crap by the way can i swear on this yeah, yeah totally so i think that's bullshit right <laughs> uh because um i think prior generations have always cared about the same things it just so happens that like it's far easier through the phone and through social media to amplify the things that Gen Z care about. So it's not like, well, you know, they care more about the earth. Well, not really. Older generations also cared more about the earth. It's just like when they cared, they had rallies, which could be seen by maybe max a thousand people. And now I put out a tweet or a TikTok and it's seen by 10 million people mm. about what's going on in the world. And so people kind of like see that and then go, well, they care more. And it's not that they care more, you're just able to see it more, right? Um, and so I think that's also quite a big distinction and that can be used for like good or bad, right? Like, yeah. Or that can be seen favorably or negatively. Favorably because you're like, wow, there's so much power and influence. Negatively because there is so much power and influence. And so, you know, you have people like, I don't know, uh, people like Tate's just like, just, just, going crazy on social media and some people are like well maybe it's a good thing because he is instilling you know uh, um, a sense of manliness and all that stuff and then some of the people are like yes but he's also a misogynistic prick right yeah. so you end up basically having uh, both sides of the same coin and it's and it's neither good or bad it's just that um, the things that we cared about have a perspective on are just more amplified isn't there also a danger with social media? And I'd be interested more broadly in your thoughts on social media, having built an empire in in your 20s, about how it does lead to that sort of Tate shock element, because that's the quickest way to sort of build followings is to be shocking on it. Yeah. It's not just Gen Z on this, right? Yeah, Pol yeah, yeah. Politicians are equally guilty. Oh, yeah. But I also don't think that's a social media thing. I think that's a people thing, right? Like. Yeah. If you look at newspapers, you know, 
they have the big board headline, you know, like shock, this person has been caught doing this, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like, do you want to, you know, like, do you want to quadruple your income in four days? And like, that's the headline in the newspaper, right? Yep. And so social media is just a medium. Um, TV is just a medium. Radio is just a medium. I think social just makes it a lot more frequent, right? But, yeah. you know, for a while, I studied a lot of um copywriting and that was kind of something that I did pretty early on in fanbytes to get better at um, sales and marketing. And, you know, some of the best copywriters, it's just like, you know, like shock, horror, awe. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God. And that was in the 70s and the medium was print. And now it just happens to be social. Yeah. No, that's a fair, a fair point. One of the phrases that you've used before, which kind of distinguishes Generation Z, which I think is fascinating, is and a great phrase is that the variable now is creativity. Yeah, it used to be about kind of like how many widgets could, capitalism used to be about how many widgets can you build for as cheaply as possible, how can you export them, and actually, yeah, your phrase, the variable now is creativity, really stuck with me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's a good phrase, isn't it? Yeah, but that, but that's, <laughs> yeah. That, that is a difference in terms of, because there is now a generation of which you're part of who've been able to build kind of mass wealth in their 20s, right? Yeah, that, yeah. And that wasn't the case, like, you know, even at the turn of the century, right? Yeah. That, that is a big change. And that's going to yeah. have, like, it's going to have quite a big impact on the economy as well, right? Because you've got another 50 years in the working world or yeah. whatever, right? You're not going to go sit on a beach, um, or not all the time anyway. Um, and, you know, that's going to lead to sort of, you know, you're having impact in lots of different areas over over that time. I mean, what, what you want to work with smart people, but what do you want your impact to be? So when I first got into business, I would be, you know, completely uh, candid in saying my sole driver was financial. You know, yeah. uh, for those who don't know, you know, I, I like grew up on like the Old Kent Road, fourth floor council estate. I was like, yo, I need to get out of this, right? That was my sole function. Um, there's a phrase that I love saying, which is like, change your world and then change the world, right? And yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And so that was my sole drive. Now, I think, um, I think my kind of force and function behind starting companies, I do think part of it is almost like social impact, you know, like, I have been through the journey of um, building something and that uh, transforming my life. And I think that business is the ultimate best vehicle for that. Like I, I cannot, I cannot overestimate, underestimate, whatever, um, how incredible it is to live in a time where through your ideas and through your skill, you can just transform the way that you live your life. And so I think a big part of it is that is like, how can I use my position? How can I use what I'm doing now? How can I use even, you know, before the podcast, we spoke about, um, you know, the next company would be something insanely boring, right? Yeah. It's because I think beforehand, when I cared a lot more about, you know, what the thing was, I think I just care more now about like business as a vehicle for being able to spark some kind of like change somehow. Yeah. Right. And, and the way that you spark that change is, you know, by and large through monies. So I think, um, that has been, that's quite a big driving force in, in terms of like, okay, 
because I see kind of business and I guess generally life as a bit of a game really and like you go through life and you win games and you get points and you get and through winning some games you get to understand different cheat codes and the cheat codes level you up insanely right yeah and through those cheat codes you're able to play a far bigger game like I mean okay so so we'll go there okay so so like um you know being now I'm 28 right like being a 28 year old black guy who built a technology company which then sold for tens of millions means that the rooms and the access I have to are like way more than like I could even think about which therefore means that I can say stuff and people take it serious or someone can come to me and say like I want to affect this level of change I want to do this thing can you help me with that I go yes I can help you for do blah 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 that would not have happened if I didn't have the vehicle of business to have done it and been successful. So that's a long convoluted way to basically say that I think like at the beginning, it was purely financial. And I still think there is an element of financial because like business success is a good game that I want to play. But I also think there is something to be said here for a byproduct of winning the game of business means that you're able to affect change in a way that you wouldn't have if all you did was just come through with, you know, good intentions. And I'm very excited by that. And what have you noticed about those rooms that you now go into? One is, I think, um, and the interesting thing about like these kind of rooms is like, it's not a race thing. I think it's more of kind of an awareness thing. Like, you almost go into rooms where, you know, I was saying yesterday I was hanging out with a bunch of VCs, right? You know, like a whole range of people from different backgrounds. And there is a way of like thinking about the world, which is completely different, which is less from say a scarcity mindset to a very like abundant mindset, which is, all right, we want to affect this thing. We want to do this thing. The question is never like, could we do it? It's more, okay, cool. How would we do it, right? Um, and that change from like could to how is quite an impactful thing. I think the other thing that I've come to realize is another question that's asked a lot is like, the, who do we need to do X, Y, Z? That's something that I learned in business, but I learned it quite late, which was, you know, most of the answers that you want are in the heads of other people. Just go find those other people. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, well, okay, cool. I would just almost spend my time being like a professional, like people collector, um, because I know that rather than trying to find the answers myself, I can then go find the people who have the answers. The other thing actually, which I find um, fascinating, I think in business, especially when you're early on and to be honest, probably in like well, anything, right? I think a lot of people operate from a zero sum game and the kind of higher you go in business or just in the world, you tend to realize the world is just not a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. So when you are starting off, you go, well, um, for me to win, he has to lose, right? So you're very protective of the things that you have um, or the things that you've acquired, etc. 
one of the things I came to realize as I got, you know, quote unquote more successful, it's just this very kind of like openness to share because it, because the mentality is like, if I win, we all win or by me helping you, the pie gets bigger. That was, um, that was a big perspective shift for me. I would say like, that's a huge perspective shift because now, you know, I'm like, I'm very open around like my network or introductions or, Hey, here's this thing that I'm doing with my money, which helps me this way. And then someone else would tell me like, Oh my God. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Da, da, da. Um, those three things have been things that I've learned recently, which I go, wow, that's insane. Do you feel a responsibility to, um, young people, but, but also young black men? Do you now feel a responsibility, a, a weight of that on your shoulders to, to help and to do so at scale? Right. So. I thought this after I saw the company, I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, there's not many people who have been through this. How can I impact them? I don't see it as a responsibility. What I do see though is because, you know, often some people would go through this thing and then they'll set up like a charity or mm-hmm. like they do this and do that. I don't feel compelled to do that because I think like the greatest game of given is actually being quite a capitalist <laughs> you know it's it, it, it's like making money and then supporting people with that money so like i've funded a bunch of companies and yes i do have a general you know i will lean towards oh okay this is a founder who i can empathize with but i wouldn't say it's a responsibility like i don't kind of see it as a i don't know raison d'etre to be like mm. okay yeah cool you know this is it. This is what I'm dedicating it to. I rather see it as I should continuously, especially, you know, for the next company or anything that I do, I should continuously aim to be as successful as, as I possibly can, because that makes the byproduct in terms of uh, people who see the journey, people who are inspired by it, people who can then come to me for money, people who can do all these things. It just makes it a lot bigger than not being successful. No, no, I can, uh, I can see that, but you have been, You've been generous. You've done lots of podcasts and so on. Yeah. Like you're clearly quite keen to kind of put your sort of message out there and, and how you did it, right? Yeah, I think most of it is because, you know, I started Fanbytes at 21. I really wish I basically had me when I was 21, you know? Yeah. And like, if you look at my podcast or just the way that I talk on podcasts, it's very frank and open. It, it, it It's not, it's not PC. It's not like, you know, Hey, things were really great, etc. I'm like, well, no, this was shit. Don't do this. Yeah. Do this. This works. Don't do this. Don't do this. Because, you know, I think the 21 year old me would absolutely have loved to be like, oh, well, you know, this is how we overcame uh, things and got our first customer. This is how we lost customers. This is why we lost customers. This is how we raised funding. This is how we approach funding. I'd love for that to have happened. It is something that I'm struck by the sort of slightly younger generation than me of, of business owners that are because they've lived in a world where it's been online and they've yeah. had, they've had an online persona as well. I'm always struck with actually how honest people are. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I remember when Ben Francis was on the Today program the other day. And he was asked about whether they were going to float Gymshark and et cetera. And he just answered it like straightforwardly. And I just thought that is not how media training would have been taught 10 <laughs> years ago. Right. And it was just like, yeah, well, we might do it's something that's obviously tempting, but you know, we're just kind of assessing our mm. options. And I just thought like that there is something that has changed with this generation because they've had to live life so much in the 
public eye almost that has made them a lot more honest with the way because they've they've just had to have been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and also no one was really media trained, right? Yeah. So we started off just- You're Insta trained, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you're Insta trained. There you go, right? Like you're, yeah. That's a good one. Insta trained <laughs> and not media trained. That's good. Um, um, yeah. And so for us, it's like, well, I'm just going to say stuff because I just talk on social like this with my friends. And then, you know, it doesn't really matter the platform. Because yeah. actually the danger, the biggest danger is talking a certain way on social with your friends and then going on like traditional TV mm. and then changing it and people going, oh, you're a sellout. Yeah. That's actually a far bigger danger than being media trained. Yeah. You know, because then it's like, oh, you sold out. Whereas if you just, you know, whether it's radio, wherever, and you're like, no, I'm just going to I did an event. Um, I got this award probably like two, three years ago at the House of Lords. Um, House of Lords, House of Commons, I don't know the difference. Um, and one's I just, green, one's red. Well, there you go. <laughs> I don't know which one it is. Um, and I came in like, a black t-shirt and everyone was like wearing suits and stuff. And, you know, we took photos and videos, etc. And I think I posted it on LinkedIn or something like that. Hey, this was great, blah, blah. And like 90% of the comments were like, I love that you rocked up in a black t-shirt. You know, yeah. like, I, like, cause every photo I've seen you of is just chilling in a t-shirt. So actually it would have been a bit weird if you just went to this place and you're like, well, now I'm playing their game. You yeah. Know? And so um, I think that runs true with most entrepreneurs. But I just on the dress code thing, like it's interesting because I care a lot about kind of people being successful from working class backgrounds. And there was something that I read once, which was like, in a way, when everyone had to wear a suit in the corporate world, that made life a lot easier because that was, it was effectively like a uniform. Did you have a dress code at Fanbytes? I'm trying to think. The last time I rocked a uniform was, yeah, for my um, sixth form. But I went to like a boarding school thing and I was, we wore these. I went to a school called Christ Hospital and we had these like 16th century gowns and whatever. And I do remember thinking like, what the heck is going on here? But, yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, because you got we went to, you got on a scholarship to yeah. sixth form, right? Because that yeah, was a big moment as well. Yeah, so. yeah. Going to CH was quite a crazy CH crash hospital, right? Because um, I wanted to go there. I mean, sometimes I think about whether my life would have been different if I had not gone to CH. Because I also got scholarships to like Dulwich College, uh, City of London, and Elaine's. And then I chose to go to Christ Hospital. And I think the sole reason why was because it was outside of London. It was in West Sussex and it was a boarding school. And I felt like I almost needed to transport myself out of living in Southwark, Oaken Road to like experience a completely different world. Um, and I don't know, would my life have been different? Maybe. But I think, you know, and this is something I'm sure you've heard me say before, was like the single biggest thing that Christ Hospital helped me do was to understand um, that there was a world of wealth in between being poor and being Richard Branson. Like, yeah. like before I went there, I basically like didn't have a good sense of like what money was because I just was like, well, you're either kind of like working class, chilling or you are Richard Branson like there is no gap in between yeah and then you know uh, I said uh, um you know 
one day I was going home and there was like a helicopter came to pick up a kid from school. And I was just like, what the flip? Like, <laughs> who is this person's dad? Right. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, actually, there's a whole world of people who like, they're not known. They're not like incredibly famous. They're not billionaires or whatever, but by building businesses, by doing great jobs. And like, that was when then I started the prior company to Fanbytes, um, Entrepreneur Express, et cetera. So like, that was definitely a pivotal moment for me. Um, and I think, look, like that story in some different form, everyone's kind of had that kind of, uh, uh, you know, if you were watching a film and then the film said, and at this point it all changed, you know, like, Everyone has had that, whether it's in uh, money or fitness or relationships or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like everyone's had that. And I think what Christ Hospital did was like gave me several of those moments in such a short space of time in two years that I was like, oh, my God, now my life has changed, you know, yeah. which is an interesting uh, way to think about like how do you. How do you get more young people or more people to strive for more? Well, just expose them to more of those sort of moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a sliding doors moment because it makes such a uh, it makes such a difference. What what did your um, parents do? My my dad just worked for the council, and my mum was just on benefits. Like yeah. she's yeah she, she just. I guess she like picked up some jobs, kind of like teaching people kind of like computer courses or something like that. But um, that's pretty much it, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're clearly very driven. Where, where does that sort of, you know, where, where has that drive kind of come from? Where does my drive come from? Well, I mean, I can answer that question in two ways. The first one was an external drive and the other was an internal drive. Mm. The first one was I didn't like being poor. End of story. Like, like, that was it, right? I woke up one day when I was like 16, 17, and I was like, oh, you know, well, actually, more like 14, 15. I was like, oh my God, like, I'm not able to afford stuff. And I don't know why I'm not able to afford stuff. I didn't choose to be here. Therefore, I'm going to change it. <laughs> that was pretty much yeah. it, right? Very frank way. Um, then the internal, I think, was like, I think it was after the prior company, Entrepreneur Express. And like, for those, um, listen, that wasn't like some incredible exit. You know, I was like 17, started this company. And then like basically 11 months afterwards, sold it for 110 grand. Right. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe that I thought about this thing and I magicked it. And like someone paid me for it. So, oh my God, this is insane. Um, and then I think it became more of how good could you be? Right. Um, you know, you you almost have this uh, skill slash magic trick of being able to think about things, put them out into the world, people pay you for it. And like, you know, you love that sort of game. Um, how good could you actually be? I think a lot more young people should take that um, perspective to life and work. As in the perspective shouldn't be, what is my predetermined purpose, you know? I think a lot of people kind of go, you know, what's my purpose? How do I find my purpose? Mm. And I think that's bullshit. Like, I don't believe there is a purpose. I believe you define your purpose. And for me, I don't think I have a purpose. I think it's more, this thing is something I enjoy right now. And, you know, I, I did a TED talk um, 
earlier and I said, you know, at some point I wanted to be a magician. At some point yeah. I wanted to be a journalist. At some point I wanted to be a like behavioral economist. And then at some point I was like, oh, actually the skill that I've been able to hone and I really enjoy is business. So I'm going to do that. We could be having this conversation in 10 years. And then I'm like, well, actually the business thing was kind of cool, but now I want to be like a marine biologist, right? Yeah. You know, so there isn't some kind of like predetermined purpose. You get to define it. And I think that is what has like driven me so far was, you know, at the beginning it was financial and then it then became more, you know, you have this skill set. How good could you be at the skill set? Yeah. But the interesting thing about all the careers that you kind of named there that you had an interest in along the way, yeah, yeah. like you end up using all of those skills yeah, and kind of building fun buys, right? Which I think is is really uh, interesting. You talk about selling the first company out for 110 grand. You obviously then sold fan bites for a lot more. You tweeted something the other day about like, it's never enough though. Yeah. And that really stuck with me because I think a lot of exit entrepreneurs find themselves in that boat that it's like, there isn't a number that then suddenly makes it all the way. Yeah. You think there is, but then you sort of go past it and, you know, what just what are your kind of reflections on yeah that? so one of the things i would say is i think money has solved all my money problems right <laughs> right like like uh everything like uh, bills parents holidays blah, 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 like everything taken care of i don't need to think about it but it hasn't solved you know problems say some of my uh mental problems so by that i mean you know there are still times where i feel anxious about certain things uh there are still times that i think hmm you know a bit uncertain about certain actions and whether i have 10 million or 100 million i would still feel uncertain because that's a personality thing um one of the things that I have actually been very intentional of doing is I was hanging out with a friend who just sold his company for um, <laughs> for 400 million, like insane, insane, insane. And we're talking, we're talking. And then he was like, okay, next one going to be a billion. It's like, why? Yeah. Like, why does it have to be a billion? He said, well, because this person saw his coming for a billion. Okay. But you're both going to die at some point. Yeah. And then what happens? And and he was like, yeah, but you know the game, the game. I was like, all right, cool. But also, what game did you set out to play at the beginning? And yeah. I see the world in basically two ways. You're either playing the money game or the status game. And the problem is often, like you said, entrepreneurs, they kind of finish the money game, then they go and play the status game. But the status game is just like a never-ending hamster wheel because there's always going to be someone richer than you. There's always going to be someone better looking than you. There's always going to be someone like taller than you. So you have to like set the bar and then say, I've passed this bar. And then every game I'm then playing is a game that I'm choosing to play, which is why even when I say it's like never enough, I don't mean it out of a position of like, woe is me is never enough. I am choosing now to play a bigger game. Mm -hmm. And I know that it is not because I want to you know, keep up with the Joneses and stuff. It's like, well, I haven't maxed out my full potential yet, you know? And like, that is why it's never enough because, you know, you sell a company for tens of millions and you go like, I wonder if I could, you know, like, do it again, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not to compare to some other person. It's like, I wonder if like me as an individual, 
can fulfill the potential of being another person who can do it again. And I'm sure when I do that, he'd be like, no, I wonder if I could, like, just to fulfill my own potential, then could I do, like, 100 million? But yeah, it's, it's like different syndromes on the way, because I've always thought, always been interested by the imposter syndrome, but then also the the one you alluded to there, like the lucky syndrome, right? Mm. So I just like, you know, was I just looking at it? Do you think success status is different in the 21st century? It used to be about the house, the car, the watch. <laughs> you know, now it's... That's about your followers, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now it's about your followers and... and um, and your likes. Um, but it is there a bit, right? It is, it is. I mean, are you, li- are you listen to, you know, do people listen to yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. You know, categorically, I mean, there's a whole world of where you can just buy fake followers for a reason, right? Yeah. Because people know like followers equals status and status apparently equals happiness. Um, so that definitely has changed because now is less of a, um, what makes, what makes me feel successful. And now is like, what makes other people think I'm successful. Yeah. And that's all due to social media, to be honest. Like social media has amplified it so much. I've been in I've been in conversations with people and it's like, you know, they they well, on Instagram they have, you know, four million followers. I mean, half of them are fake. They have like a uh, rented this, rented that, and like they've asked me for money. I'd be like, dude, but I thought you had the Lambo, bro. Yeah, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I thought you had a big house and all of these things, but it's because the 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 kind of currency now is um, followers, likes, and all of that. One of the things that you've talked about is if you could go back and give yourself some advice, it would be to have like a lower intensity. <laughs> yeah, I was just so struck by that because you like, but it goes back to that. You know, when you're in your twenties, you're in a hurry, like you're yeah. trying to build wealth, trying to build state, da, 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 da. and I just thought like. Yeah, I was just interested to kind of like unpack that more because I think that's a very, you know, it's, it's easier to say once you've kind of built yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. But I was just struck by it. Yeah, I, I know. You know, it's one of those things, right? Like someone makes a bunch of money then says money doesn't make you happy. It's like, all right, mate. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was a very intense person. I still think that I am intense, not as intense as um, running families. I was like super intense because I was like perpetually in a hurry. And I think that I had to almost, you know, after a while, I was like, dude, like, this doesn't matter. You know, like, mm. this this decision which this week you think is so crucial, if you project out three months, you're just going to be like, oh, well, okay. You know, um, that perspective is something. I do wish a lot more young people would have this because mm. I think that is a big, um, that is a big, determinant of why there is such you know like a, i guess a, a mental health uh crisis right now is because like people are perpetually in a hurry and when they feel like they haven't done x by this time they go oh man i flopped but the the, the not the, the not achieving thing though do you think because part of my worry with social media and so on is actually people like you is no but like you you have people like you it's people like you people like you piss me <laughs> off <laughs> but no but they see that 20 year old in uh, their yeah. 20s they see how successful you've been and think shit like i'm not getting anywhere and They're i'm 26 yeah, and i'm 27 yeah. and i'm behind and he's had a multi-million exit and like i just don't know where i'm going in life and that's a lot why this, we create this yeah, because yeah. it's hard to work this shit out right but 
the crazy thing is like everybody feels like that. Yeah. Like everybody feels like that. You know, the person that you see as the successful entrepreneur is also like, oh man, the other person's more successful. That other person's got I was with someone recently who said, Oh, oh yeah, I am I am more successful than that person, but they've got a hotter girlfriend. And I was like, wow, this is what we're doing now. Like we've gone from <laughs> it's about me to now how good looking is my partner. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was just like, okay, at some point is it, oh man, they've got better looking kids now. It's like, what, like, at what point is this going to end? Right. So, I mean, it is a perpetual, um, game. Um, and, uh, I don't know, man, you just have to like set your bar and then see how it goes and understand that it's a game. Totally. I want to just get into one of the things about, because yeah. a lot of people listen to this about hiring podcasts. Yeah. One of those tweets, it was really interesting that I, that I didn't really understand enough, right? So this is this is me picking your brain live oh, on okay. the podcast. But the tweet said, hire people to own functions, not get tasks done. Yes. In the early days, we hired salespeople. Over time, we hired people to run the sales team. In hindsight, we should have done it the other way around. Yeah. What do you sort of mean by that? So it's like basically getting heads of teams in rather than junior people. When I started Fanbyte, I was very much, so two things. First of all, I had a very short-term attitude to things. So it was very much like, okay, who can we hire to do sales now? Who can we hire to do things now? And it was because I was thinking too much about like the tasks themselves rather than the organization, like how we build a company. I was just thinking, right, how do we do this now? How do we do this now? And when I talk about um, hiring people to run divisions and not functions, it is primarily because I realize that the single biggest thing as a founder, as a CEO, as anything, is like your mental effort to think through things and to solve problems. And when you hire people, you know, say junior salespeople or salespeople to like do the actual work, you still have to do the cognitive work of like thinking through the problems and then you just get people to do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the best way to approach it is, right, I'm going to find the people who can also both do the cognitive stuff and also then can hire people who can do the tactical stuff or they can do the cognitive and the tactical stuff. And that's where you get a 10x improvement on your business. For example, I was talking about the next company that I do and I don't know what the idea is going to be, but I do know that I'm spending a lot more time in terms of like, who am I going to start it with? Mm. Because I know that once you figure out the who, the what, you know, first idea will probably not be the best one, et cetera, but we will stumble across something good. So it's just another example of how you almost, every answer that you want is in the heads of someone else go find those people get them to like be part of the machine and then the machine grows by 10x because hiring someone to do a division is not like a 2x improvement it's not like a 3x improvement it's like a 10x improvement and so if you spend more time doing that rather than like okay we need this thing done right now at this very moment yeah it transforms your business and what does interest you now i imagine part of the problem that you have now is that you've got too many options in front of you <laughs> yeah I'd say I've I've become a bit of a professional no-sayer. Yeah. Uh, and that's been by design, all right? Um, I don't want to be constantly saying yes and yes to everything. I think the overarching thing that interests me, so I like generally have um, three principles. Number one, is it with good, smart, um, uh, high-agent people? 
That phrase, like high agency, is something that I've come to realize is really, really valuable to me. Just like people who hold themselves to a high standard. Um, there's actually a tweet I sent, which was, um, if you're running a business, you tend to over-index on people who are passionate about your business. Mm. But you actually need people who would just do a good job regardless of what business you put them in. And that was something that I learned later on in Fanbytes when at the beginning I was shocking at hiring because I'd hire people who were like, you know, obsessed about influencer marketing. And it's like, actually, I should have hired people who just care about being good at the skill, at, at the marketing or at the sales, at the client service, at finance. Like they love the thing and you could put them in a in a bin collection business and they're like, oh my God, I love the actual skill of doing the thing. Uh, second one is, I am interested in things which are highly scalable, right? Um, you know, Fanbytes, great business. We got it to, you know, multiple um, eight figures in revenue and it was great business, but it's still at its core was like a tech enabled agency, right? Now it did well and all of that, but still the leverage there was a good bit of tech, a very healthy bit of tech, but still people, yeah. right? So I'm interested in like, you know, quite software driven businesses. And then the third criteria for me of things that are interesting, that are like generally interesting is um like I do prefer B2B companies um yeah. by far um than B2C companies. I've done now about um twenty yeah, about twenty investments and like most of them are B2B companies. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe fifteen B2B, five of them B2C. So that's been quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. Mm. What do you think the impact of, of AI could be on the future of work? <laughs> on the future of work. Okay. So on the future of some... jobs, etc. Yeah. Well, jobs work. So before I go into that, here's a very interesting thing. I actually posted it on LinkedIn today. Um, this girl called Carolyn something something. Uh, she basically was a Snapchat influencer, as it mm. was, is a Snapchat influencer, and she made an AI bot, which was basically like her as a chatbot. And in like in a week, she made seventy two thousand dollars. And all she did was she sold it to her audience, and she charged a dollar a minute. AI bot. Yeah. Like the heck, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's insane. Anyway, um, that's a precursor to say two things. First of all, I think the impact of AI is it's going to enable just people in general to monetize online in ways that they just could not even think about. Because suddenly you can train a data set or you can, yeah, so you can train a data set, feed it into something like ChatGPT and just like, tap into really passionate, deep communities faster than you could ever do. Obviously, as we know, it makes things significantly faster and cheaper. And so um, I think there's going to be a reskilling of, 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 um, of jobs, not like uh, displacing, I think uh, reskilling. But for me, actually, the most exciting thing, and I think it's, it's most relevant to me as well, is like, I actually see AI very much like social media. When social media first started off, you know, I like really kicked off the MySpaces of the world and all of those people. And even, you know, the what tends to happen, right, is you have, um, you have, you know, 
social media as a thing. And then you have the platforms built on top of social media, mm-hmm. Facebook, Google, blah, blah, blah. But then you have people building different variations of businesses on top of social media, right? So like Fanbytes was an agency. A good friend of mine ran um, Lad Bible, right? Like he capitalized on social media. Let's look at um, Ben Francis. He capitalized on social media, right? So like you have three people. One did it an agency route. One did it a media brand route. One did an e-commerce route. And... The reason I say that is because that's actually, to me, the biggest impact that like AI is going to have on jobs. It's like, if you imagine AI as social media, i.e. it's like the infrastructure layer, and then on top of it, Facebook, Google, blah, blah, that's like your chat GPTs, your mid journeys, your dollies. There's going to be a bunch of different like businesses and careers built on top of all of those things. In the same way, Fanbuys, Lad Bible, Gymshark, Fashion Over, all of these brands were built on top of it in different variations. And that's where I, I think it's like extremely exciting because it's almost like if in 2005 you missed out on social media, even yeah. though you haven't like truly missed out, right? If in 2005 you missed out on when this thing was growing, you now have another opportunity with the benefit of hindsight. And I think that's so, so, so exciting because I'm like, whoa, okay. Like, what is the corollary of what Fanbytes was, but for AI? What is the corollary of Lad Bible, but for AI? Like, there are so many different variations of businesses. And that is, like, so exciting to me that when I see people lament on social, oh, my God, it's going to take our jobs. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. Like, there is a whole new world that's about to be birthed that you just need to, like, pick some lane. Not, like, the lane. Just pick some lane, right? And as long as you're, like, playing in the game, you would win. And that's one of the things that you said that was one of the differentiators about Fanbyte starting out was like you were very specific about it in terms of being yeah. Gen Z marketing, which is yeah. you know, so often is like the emphasis is like how big is the the market? Let's go after the biggest pie. All that, understandably, but actually, as you have said a number of times in this podcast, going after niche is yeah. uh, is a benefit of that. Um, who are some of the best creators that we might not have come across that are kind of on their way up i'm a big fan of uh so i'm a football fan i'm an arsenal fan um and i'm a big fan of like arsenal fan tv um yeah. don robbie and, and and those guys i just feel as if like what they've pioneered is so insane like fan channels and they built a massive media empire off it i think that's extremely exciting um I'm trying to think of niche ones. I've been consuming a lot of TikTok stuff. And one of the things I've come to realize about creators in general now is that um, especially when it's short form video, you don't tend to know the person's name, but you just know their format of content. Mm. So on TikTok, there's like this guy who um, he 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 um, rips leather bags or like luxury stuff and then tells you like is this real or not right or like is this genuine leather or is it not i don't know his name but every time i see his content i just go oh yeah this is cool let me watch it i'm a big fan of this um podcast called um business breakdowns they just you know yeah yeah i love those because i'm like yo this is insane um i'm a big fan of founders podcast yeah so like he just kind of reads and uh, studies the biographies of people. So like, you know, those are a few in there. But again, like if you go back to my kind of earlier framework, what's interesting is like all of these people, like 
the leather guy, I think he has an audience of like 3 million people. And his entire thing is, I'm a rip leather luxury things and tell you whether it's real or not. And I'm sure he can then build his own version of it, his own version of like truly luxury bags. Yeah, yeah. And he'd make a ton of money. And I just find that so incredible. Um, so yeah, those are some creators who are cool. Um, if you were to pass the mic to another entrepreneur that we should get on the show that maybe hasn't had as much coverage yet, who would that be? Oh, I know exactly who it'd be. It would be a guy called um, Yao. Yao Asari. Yao runs a company called Averestel. Averestel is a skincare company. Now, full disclosure, I'm an investor. Mm-hmm. But they've been going for three years. So it's a skincare brand, which is for people who suffer from pigmentation. And in this third year, they'll do 10 million. And Yao is a perfect example of how he, A, constantly hustles and hustles to try and find the right thing. But then is an incredible marketer. Like the way he thinks about angles on Facebook and how social media should work, etc., is absolutely brilliant. So if you do want him on the show, I'll happily um, make yeah. that intro because I think he's also like just a very good example of how kind of, A, you don't need a large team. I think um, Ava probably has, I, I want to say maybe 10, yeah. 10 people max and they're doing 10 million a year. And I'm like, you know, it's just a good example of how you don't need a lot of people. You need to focus on a core problem and focus on just being good at a specific skill. And you can learn to be good at those skills. That's yeah. a big thing. One of my biggest frustrations is when people say, I'm not X sort of person. I just I, I just passionately hate that. Like, you know, I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a marketing person. And like, do you think that we just like, popped out of our mom's belly and we're like, oh yeah, now I know how to sell. It's like, come on, man. You know? So I think Yao's such a good example of like almost constantly reinventing himself and um, he'd be quite a good person to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'd love that. And yeah. well, one of the things that you, uh, you've, you've said in, when I was researching is like, actually, you know, getting bigger is not hiring more people necessarily. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting, we talk here as a team, like, you know, there's lots of ways that we can use different tools that are coming out to kind of get more efficient the whole time. And it was something that really, um, stuck with me um, Timo thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future it's been brilliant to have you on man. no problem it's just fun thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future we've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times we are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast but also creates content on multiple channels whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business entrepreneurship and the future of work or some of our more light-hearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.